All right, well, happy Father's Day again. We are going to, uh, we're going to finish our study in God's prophetic word here because things are heating up around the world and we've got, we've, the, the Lord has a lot to say about it. So we're going to finish the study as we've been walking through this series and we're going to finish today on our new city, which is the namesake of the church. And when the Lord founded the church in November of 2020, uh, we, it's, it's kind of funny because looking back now, we, we, were, we met a couple of times and we didn't have a name for the church yet. And there were just, you know, eight families and us hanging out. And, and then the, uh, we had a whole list of names for the church that we were brainstorming and none of them felt right. And finally the Lord um, in December of 2020 met with me and, and Jesus just said, open up your Bible and turn to Revelation 21. And I turned to, and I had read the chapter a million times at this point, but, but he said, uh, the name of the church is New City, because it's going to be, it's going to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for looking for my return. And everything this church does will be to further build that new city, the new Jerusalem, that's the forever home of the church and the bride. And... So that's, that's where the namesake of the church comes from, is what we're studying today, is, is Revelation 21 and the, the close of it all. And so if you remember, as we've been going through this, we've looked at a lot of information over the last, these past 13 messages, but from the, the crucifixion, the ascension of Christ, and 50 days later, or Pentecost, to the founding of the church... Uh, we've been studying a lot from that point on, this church age that we're in. And so today we're going to close it. So we kind of started with the bookends, right, of where the church begins all the way to after the millennium when the new Jerusalem comes down and we are forever with the Lord. So before we open up and kind of get started, as we always should do, let's, let's take this to the Lord and ask him to teach us everything because there's a lot of information uh, I need all of you to stay with me to the end because there's something really important at the end here. God, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches. God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of your word. Thank you, God, for illuminating so much for us in the scripture. And God, we pray that you would just breathe out your spirit on us overflow this place with your Holy Spirit. And God, thank you for this time together. We honor you, we praise you, and Lord, we thank you for being the best father any of us could ever ask for. We thank you and we love you and we praise you for your teaching, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we've been going through this and the seven letters of the seven churches, remember they lay out the history of the church in advance, closing with the church of Laodicea, which ends in apostasy. It's, it's where the Lord is really fed up with the church and to the point that it becomes so lukewarm, he wants to spew us out of his mouth, not us, but the church, out of his mouth. And at that point, there's an age that closes. So this will be important for the very end. The church age closes, and then there's the rapture, and he brings us home. And between the rapture and the rise of the Antichrist, it's an undetermined amount of time. We don't really know how long it'll be, but the church has to leave, 
the ten kings are set up, the Antichrist rises out of those ten kings, puts three of them down, seven consolidate power to him, and he walks in to control the beast system that we've been watching get set up for the last three plus years now. And I don't know if any of you saw this, but this beast system, it's kind of taking a step in a very weird direction recently. Uh, Germany, a church in Germany held the first church service led by artificial intelligence this last week, or maybe two weeks ago now. And so the, the AI wrote the entire message uh, the artificial intelligence delivered the message to the people. They came and hundreds of people flocked to listen to this. And this, just on the cusp of that, Yuval Noah Harari comes out and says, <clears throat> we need AI, artificial intelligence, to rewrite the Bible. And so he's, he's already laying, they're laying the groundwork for they want, the Bible will be deemed as hate speech at some point. We know that from the word of God because you're not allowed to study it or have it in the tribulation, right? So how does it get there? And remember, Satan's, Satan's war is always against the word of God. And so if he can twist and pervert what God says, then he can lead, steal, kill, and destroy, right? He can steal from you, lead you astray, and ultimately destroy you. It's just what he did with Eve in the garden, the exact same thing. So remember, she added to God's word, and thus all of us, all of humanity fell as a result. Well, that's being set up, right? And you've all know Harari said that recently. Uh, we know AI can be very demonic. Um, if, you, if you saw the, the kid who interfaced with it, it was talking about how it was one of the fallen angels that rebelled with Satan. It's crazy. It's like an electronic Ouija board. I mean, you don't want to mess with it. So anyway... But this beast system, that's another piece to it, right, is perverting and twisting the word of God and make, trying to make it of none effect. And so you have this global government, this one world religion that's going to be based on something, control all buying and selling. They're demanding worship or death with the beast, the beast system. You've got to worship him. There's a false peace from 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Remember, it comes out of the Ten Kings like we mentioned has the Antichrist and the false prophet. Remember, there are two people involved. All lines, signs, and wonders. It's the final Gentile kingdom from Daniel 2 and 7, and it's a fear-driven governance. Everything's based on fear. If you do anything in your life based on fear, it's not from God. So just keep that as a practical application, too, in everything that you do with your job, with your children, your house, your family, anything. If you act out of fear, it's the, it's the wrong motivation, and you're being led astray by something or someone. So just keep that in mind. But remember, after the Antichrist rises up, he puts three of these kings down. They consolidate power. He affirms a covenant with Israel, and that's when the tribulation begins. So we have two, a seven-year period that's broken up into two three-and-a-half-year in intervals. Three-and-a-half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And right in the middle of that is the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place. And that's when Jesus declares it'll be the, a time of trouble unlike the world has ever seen before, nor will see again, he says. At the end of that, we return with Jesus in Revelation 19. Then there's that 75-day interval that we studied in great detail. The millennium begins at the end of that 75 days and the thousand-year reign of Christ and at the end, then, there's a new heaven and a new earth, 
and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven as a gift from God, hovering over the earth. Apparently, it says comes down from heaven. It doesn't say it's hovering over the earth, but that's kind of the implication that we'll look at today. Okay, so as we've been going through this series, this is the last part of it, like I mentioned. But the introduction to prophecy, we studied, we laid the groundwork of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the rapture, the Antichrist covenant, the beast system we took two weeks on, the great apostasy we took two weeks on. We studied the supernatural intrusion of what happened in Genesis 6 and why does Jesus say, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So we looked at that in detail. We looked at the, the, how the church should behave from Acts and all over the New Testament as a result of seeing this setup, how we should run in, not bury our heads, go get as many people saved as we can. Then we looked at the return of the king in Revelation 19, that 75-day interval, the promise of the millennium. Last week, we studied the characteristics of the millennium, and then now, today, what happens after that, our, our new city. So remember last time when we looked at the characteristics of the millennium, there's, we selected a, a few and there's a lot more in the scripture, so I would encourage all of you to, to study, dive into that. Isaiah is a great book to study about the millennium and what it's going to be like. But remember, at the end of the millennium, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, where he leads a rebellion for a season. The Lord rains fire from heaven, wipes out his enemies. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, never to be loosed again. So that's the end of his rebellious campaign at that point. But after that happens, and then, starting in Revelation 21, verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So when you read this on the surface in the English, it makes you think it's new as in a new creation, and it very well may be. Um, I've, I haven't quite decided uh, my own position in this in the scripture yet on if this is a literally a new earth or a recreated earth that's put back together just like in Genesis 1 when God put the earth back together it may be that and there's some hints of that throughout the Bible uh, so I'm not I'm still digging into it but I would encourage all of you to to search that out as well part of part of it I think that the Lord can't allow the rebellion and the earth to get so far gone that he has to make a new one. Because in some sense, that would almost allow Satan to, to chalk up a win in some regard. Unless he puts it back together in the millennium and this is a new earth for all eternity. You know, I could see that too. So the, both are a possibility. But the new Jerusalem, it's been crafted since Jesus left in John 14. Remember he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And we looked at the model of the Jewish wedding, how after the, after the arrangement is set, the bridegroom departs for his father's house to build a room addition. And when that room addition is ready, then he goes and gets his bride and brings her home with him. Um, anyway, so it's very interesting, the model of the Jewish wedding. But it comes down from heaven, out of heaven from God, possibly hovering over the earth. That's kind of what the scripture implies. Um, in verse 2 here in Revelation 21, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, that's, that verse makes me think 
that the New Jerusalem is the eternal home of the bride of Christ. Remember, we've talked a lot about the body of Christ and how possibly the bride is a subset. We looked at that in the scripture of the bride being taken out of the side of Adam. Think about when uh, Isaac, when Eliezer, the, the servant, goes to get a bride for Isaac in Genesis. Remember what the Lord says, go to your people and pull a bride out of the midst of them. And so again, even in that model, the bride being a subset of his people, of the body. But again, we all need to check that out in scripture and study it out of Acts 17, 11 to see what you find, see what the Lord shows you. You see this again, though, when you skip a few verses down in verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So we have this, this new city. And the new city, your place in it and what's going on and, and where you live and what, how you serve the Lord for all eternity, it's totally built on what we do right now. And when you see this and search this out in scripture, it should give you such a sense of urgency that you are living for the Lord because you want to have a, to be a servant of faithful service so that when we get on the other side of this, you have something to offer him, right? Remember in Revelation 4 and 5, we all throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus and, and sing hallelujah and praise to the king. And you don't want to show up there empty-handed. You know, it's, that could get kind of awkward. So you, you want to show up and have something to offer, right? Have something to him. But look at Hebrews 11 verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is the only place in the entire Bible that the word rewarder is used of God. And in the Greek, it literally means one who pays wages, a rewarder, one who, one who pays wages. So when you have that mindset of, okay, I'm working for the Lord, I'm serving God, he is paying me a wage, essentially. He's rewarding me for that service. And you don't always see the reward right now. Uh, sometimes you grow weary, Galatians 6, right? Do not grow weary in doing well. Sometimes you grow weary. Sometimes the, the race is hard and you're running and you get tired. But that's why the Lord says in Isaiah, uh, you, walk, you begin your walk with him by running and then you walk. Don't, don't faint while you walk because it's the walking is the hard part. When you first get saved, you have all this adrenaline. You want to serve the Lord. You're excited about what God's doing in your life. You know, and then the walk sets in, and it's a life of walking alongside him. And that's where a lot of people grow weary and fall by the wayside because they just they don't lean on him for strength. They're not in the word of God constantly. They're not building their faith. They're not surrounding themselves with like-minded Christians that can come alongside like in Exodus 17 and lift up your arms when you grow weary, just like uh, her and Aaron did for Moses in the war. But it's an attribute of God that's perhaps, honestly, maybe the most overlooked in the Bible. I mean, I grew up my whole life in church and never heard anyone say there was something on the other side of this for you that the Lord is building and storing up for you, stay strong and press on. I never heard that. But whenever I started studying this, it just, man, it ignites a fire in you. 
when you really understand this, that there's something on the other side of this for us. Uh, and it's there in plain sight, honestly. But the crowns, the rewards, the overcomer, in our home, the new city. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. See, God is always working to try to store up an inheritance for you. Obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. You know, Abraham walked around with his grandchildren, living in tents. But he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know, God is a, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You have to be diligent about your walk with God, not lackadaisical. And are you looking for that city whose builder and maker is God? Abraham walked around looking for the new Jerusalem. He walked around all the way back thousands and thousands of years ago looking for the new city that we are promised in the New Testament. It's amazing, but we have to look to our eternal home as well. Okay, what is this new city going to be like? You know, we get the best description of it in Revelation 21. It's got the most detail of anywhere in the Bible, but it's our forever home in Revelation 21 verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It's our new city, the new Jerusalem. It's, you know, I can't imagine, it's hard to grasp living in a city that Jesus personally prepared for us for over 2,000 years and that's it's ruled by a righteous king that spoke the universe into existence, that fearfully and wonderfully formed us in the womb, that you look around at what he did on the earth, and he put it all back together. He just spoke, and it was, and in six days, he put it back together, and it's beautiful. You know, the creation is awesome. You can walk around the earth and, and just be in awe. Go up to the, the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Northwest or a mountain range in the Rockies, and you look around and it's, it's unbelievable, the waterfalls and the rivers and everything. But he's been working on this for exponentially more time. You know, so just imagine, it's going to be incredible. But having the glory of God in her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, these precious stones throughout the Bible... In ancient times, all the way back to Adam and Eve and in Genesis, it was a way they described light. So they, the precious stones really were a way they described light, refracting. And over the, over the thousands of years, we've lost name of what these stones really were called then. So today, what we call a jasper might be something totally different than what it was called in the Old Testament. So you kind of can't connect these one for one today. We've lost what those stones were called back then. But just to get an idea, uh, the Lord has us in English here for us. But had a great wall, a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written thereon. So every gate has an angel, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So each gate is named for a tribe of the children of Israel and has an angel there. 
and it's got 12 gates, three on each side, north, south, east, and west. But I've always wondered, why are there gates in the New Jerusalem? (laughs) You know, why are there gates? At this point, Satan's put down, there's a new heaven and the new earth, and then there's the New Jerusalem. There are people, I guess, on the earth at this point in eternity, you know, but are they trying to get in to the New Jerusalem and they shouldn't be? What's going on? Why are there gates? You know, is there another rebellion at some point down the road? I don't know. These are just questions that the Lord kind of brought up in my mind as I've been studying this, but why are there walls? You know, why isn't it just this open city? I'm not sure. I guess we'll find out when we get there. But in verse 13 here, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the apostles laid the foundation for Christ. The gateway to get to him was through Israel, right, because he was a Jewish king. So you see that in how the city was set up. Israel is our gateway to Jesus. And one of the greatest miracles in the Bible is the fact that they rejected him when he showed up in the, in the New Testament. Uh, which opened the door for all of the Gentiles to be co-heirs with Christ. It's incredible. Verse 5 here, He that talked with me had a golden reed met to measure the city, and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Okay, the city lieth foursquare, and the length, is as large as the breadth. So a square in the Bible always represents justice, or what is just. Okay, a square. Uh, four is always kind of the construction, completion of construction. You see a lot of things in four that we're going to look at. But in, if you remember the altar burn, burn offering from Exodus 27, it was four square. The altar of incense was also four square and represented our prayers in Exodus 30. Uh, verse 7. The breastplate of judgment was four square. Remember from the Old Testament, Exodus 28, 15 through 16. Uh, it's also in Exodus 39, 8 through 9. The ephod, the ephod that the high priest wore was four square. Remember, and he had the stones on it, that um, each stone for the, the 12 tribes of Israel. But the breastplate was called the breastplate of judgment. Remember, the high priest was required to wear it into the Holy of Holies to symbolize his intercessory role. In essence, he was wearing the sins and the judgment of the people, because the four four score represent judgment, and bearing their sin and judgment, bringing them to the mercy seat through the process of atonement and going through the veil. Remember, there was only one day Per year, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So he would, he would go through all of that ritual of being atoned, take the sin, you know, uh, not literally, but figuratively as a type, into the Holy of Holies, forgiveness and cleansing that the temple rituals dictated, he would go through that atonement. The people themselves could not approach the dwelling place of God beyond the veil, so the priest was required to represent them And that's the basic purpose of that breastplate. By wearing the names of the tribes, the priest was bringing them before God through atonement and intercession, the Lord then taking it in all forgiveness as only he can provide. And that substitutionary role of the high priest 
is very obviously rendered perfect and complete in and through the cross. Remember, as we studied Hebrews, Christ is our high priest in his eternal role as our high priest in the Holy of Holies forever, and he makes intercessory prayer for us. So when you, when you have sin in your life and you ask for forgiveness, literally, Jesus is taking that, and he promises, and he's just and faithful to forgive you of your sins if you will confess them, and brings it in there, and they are atoned for. So that whole thing is a model of what he does for us. Okay, one furlong. Remember, the length and the breadth are, are 12,000 furlongs. It's about uh, 220 yards, so about 1,500 miles is how long the breadth and the length. And if you wanted it down to three decimal places, it's .003. Just for all of you that were wondering, is it really 1,500 miles? It's 1,500.003 if you, if you do the math. But that's the distance. This thing is huge. That's the distance from Miami to Lawrence, Massachusetts. So think about the entire eastern seaboard almost. Or from Hollywood to Lincoln, Nebraska. It's huge. You know, you don't think about how big the United States is, but the United States is massive from a land size. It's got a a lot of square miles. So, and the length and the width and the height are all equal. So, why is it 1,500 miles high? Well, it's because we'll have access then in our glorified bodies to all of those other dimensions we don't have access to right now, where the Lord dwells. The very dimensions that uh, CERN is trying to open up right now, you know, through all of those evil, occultic, ritualistic services and things that they're trying to do underground over in Europe. And they've been opening a lot of those gateways. And, they're, and they, if you study the articles and read and, and listen to the scientists, they will tell you, yeah, we see some entities on the other side, but we can't quite get it open enough to let them come through. And you're sitting there, every time I read that and listen to those guys, I'm like, you are insane. Why, what makes you think you, what are you, why do you want them to come through? But they do. They are trying to open it to let them come through because they know, just like in the Old Testament, there's power to be offered by those fallen angels and those entities. So they're trying to to rip open that space-time continuum again. But there's two separate places. There's the New Jerusalem and the New Earth. So whatever is going, it doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say how big the New Earth is, but if it's just recreated like this Earth, there's going to be plenty of room. And I think you and I get the opportunity to go back and forth a lot from our home in the New City to the New Earth. But a lot of people view the, the New Jerusalem as a cube. If you look this up and just Google pictures of artist renderings of the New Jerusalem, you'll see it as a cube because the scripture says the, the length, the breadth, and the height are all equal. Uh, well, theoretically, it could also be a pyramid because the height in the center of the pyramid could be equal, and the walls w- then would come in. And I think there might be some truth to that because of Isaiah 19.19, 19, speaking of the pyramids over in, in Egypt In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. The Great Pyramid in Giza literally fulfills both of these conditions. It's in the middle of Egypt, but yet where it sits, it's on the border of that nation. And if you study, this is a whole rabbit trail that you could go down for a lot of time. Uh, And I've gone down the trail some. But if if you study this, that pyramid has characteristics that we could not emulate or build today. 
And there's a lot of things that are very curious about it. Was it at one point before the flood literally an altar to the Lord that then was corrupted? Uh, was, it, was it a place that will be redeemed by Jesus in the millennium in that day? Will it become an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt? I don't know. It's very curious. But the Lord kind of hides those little, those little nuggets and mysteries in the word of God for us. Remember Proverbs 25 two, it's the honor or the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. So it's kind of fun digging into this kind of stuff. But in verse 17, he measured the wall thereof 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. So 144 cubits on a conservative state it would be about 216 feet high. That's a tall wall surrounding the city. That's very tall. That would, that would make some skyscrapers uh, look dwarfed in some spots. But it's very tall. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. I love that God just uses gold like it's nothing in the New Jerusalem. I mean, we're going to walk on streets of gold, and yet we, we value it as the most precious metal on earth right now. And the foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth a sardunx, the sixth a sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprus, I'm trying to read that from back of the room here, the eleventh a jacknith, the twelfth an amethyst. So you have these twelve stones. The order, this was interesting, the order of the stones in the New Jerusalem are different than the order that they appear in the breastplate of the high priest. And you could track this down, but if you, if you take each stone represented one of the tribes, the children of Israel, and if you lay out their names on the breastplate of the high priest, you have Reuben was the first stone. Uh, it goes right to left, actually. Reuben was the first stone, Benjamin the last stone. And literally, it, it modeled... Uh, behold a son, the son of my right hand, because Reuben means a son and Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So you had Jesus literally like bookending the stones of the breastplate of the high priest. So if you take that same kind of concept and study it to how they're set out in the New Jerusalem, it's really interesting. Remember, Satan was clothed in light. He was represented by these precious stones in Ezekiel 28. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now when you study Ezekiel 28, it's a prophecy against the prince of Tyre, and then the Lord shifts his focus and makes a prophecy to the king of Tyre, and you know that the king is somebody different because God immediately goes into, you have been in Eden, the garden of God. Obviously, the king of Tyre then, um, before Alexander the Great, had not been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, and he goes through these stones. So Satan was that anointed cherub clothed in light that was surrounding God's throne that led worship in heaven until he rebelled. And it's very interesting to study that in Ezekiel 28. Okay, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. This is in verse 21 here. Every several gate was, by one, was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold. There it is. That's not just some you know, Sunday school tradition that the streets in in the New Jerusalem are pure gold. It's in the scripture. As it were, transparent glass. Now, I've never seen gold that you can see through, but apparently this gold you can see through. The pearl, though, the gates of 12 pearls, the pearl is a Gentile stone. 
the, to the Jews, the pearl was non-kosher. It was, it was an unclean stone because it came forth, uh, you know, through an oyster, which was unclean to the, gent- to the Jewish people. So it's amazing when Jesus uses it as the gate to get into the new city. And he also uses it in the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Those seven parables, in the order of which they're written, line up perfectly with these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But a a pearl, it comes from the sea, uh, not from the earth. You could link that from Isaiah. The Gentiles are like the troubled sea. They grow from a stimuli through accretion. It's an irritation. Uh, Think like the church, persecution. Everywhere the church is persecuted around the world, it thrives and grows. Right now, the the fastest growing church in the world is the underground church in Iran, and it's the most persecuted. And I heard somebody say, we were, Randy and I were listening to a message yesterday driving down to Lawton, I heard somebody, the pastor we were listening to say, uh, the modern day church was never built for war, it was built for peace, peacetime in America. The modern church in America was built for peace, which is why in 2020, when the government declared war on the church, a lot of the churches did not know how to respond. They weren't built for wartime. Uh, The underground church in Iran is very much built for war (laughs) because they are persecuted constantly, running for their lives, but it's the fastest growing church. That's how a pearl grows, though, is through an irritation, through, think, the model persecution of the church. The pearl is then removed from their place of growth to be an item of immense adornment, just like the church. It grows through persecution, and at some point, Jesus will remove it from its place of growth to be an item adored by the king. Okay, it's it's incredible how it just lines up exactly with what he has for the church, a pearl, and that's the gate to get into the city. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, in verse 22. So remember what Jesus said, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple, and there is no more temple from that point forward. Jesus is in the midst of it. He's greater than the temple. The temple's always been a way to have fellowship and to get to the Lord, and that's not needed anymore at this point. In verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Of course, Jesus said what? I am the light of the world, and he will fulfill that. You can find in several places in Isaiah, Psalms, a few other spots, that Jesus, it says, he stretched the heavens like a tent curtain and set the span. And it's almost like it it describes of him stretching out like a tent and setting these tent pegs in place. Well, we know that at some point, he rolls up the very heaven that we look at. He rolls it up. So the space that you and I see gets put aside, and the earth somehow becomes interdimensional again. So that space, the universe that we see right now, that we know has boundaries, gets rolled up, according to Isaiah and several other spots, and here, because there's no more sun. Okay, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So there are people on the, on the new earth. There are kings on the new earth. They're bringing glory and honor to it to make offerings to Jesus. We are the inhabitants, the citizens of the new Jerusalem. And somehow 
there's a, an interplay here between what we're doing and what the kings of the earth are doing. Do you see how God just kind of sets this in there, but doesn't give us a lot of detail, so it leaves more questions than answers almost? But that could be why there are gates. People from the earth are coming to visit. Maybe they can only visit at certain times. Maybe there's people on the earth that rebel again, and you and I have to go and take care of business. I have no idea, but it's fascinating. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. So the gates always stay open just like the cities of refuge in, in the Old Testament. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall, shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there has to, if there's People that are working abomination and maketh a lie, they can't enter it. It must mean that's still going on at some point. Or it means that those people have been dealt with and their inheritance is on the earth. Maybe they got saved afterwards or something. I don't know. Uh, but their inheritance is on the earth and they can't get into it. Do you see how there's, there's a lot of questions here? But the New Jerusalem, it's got four sides. Uh, four is the number of wholeness in structure or nature. And you see this kind of in everything. A lot of what God designed and built has, is in groupings of four. The foundation of creation, the wholeness of life, it's all built on the structure of four. The DNA of all living things is comprised of four letters, G, C, A, and T. There's four blood types in animals and humans, A, B, O, and A, B. There's four chambers of the heart, the right atrium, the left atrium, the right ventricle, and the left ventricle. The cerebrum, the largest part of the brain, is divided into four lobes, frontal, partial, temporal, and occipital. The part of the eye that's visible is four parts, the iris, the cornea, the pupil, and the sclera. There's four basic types of tissue in humans. There's four types of plant tissue. There's four orders in nature, the material, plant, animal, and human. Four types of compounds within living organisms, which is interesting, lipids, proteins, nucleic nucleic acids, acids, and carbohydrates. The cow's stomach is divided into four digestive compartments. There are four kinds of teeth, eight incisors, four canines, eight premolars, and 12 molars. And of the 12 molars, there's even a subgrouping of four, the wisdom teeth, which is interesting. There's four fundamental forces of nature, gravity, strong nuclear force, which is the interaction, electromagnetism, and weak nuclear force, which is interaction. So if you study physics, matter exists in four states, solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. There's four terrestrial or rocky planets in our solar system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. There's four giant gas and ice planets in our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Four of Jupiter's moons are readily visible from Earth, the Galilean moons. All winged insects, with the exception of flies, have four wings, which is, that's interesting. Insects uh, butterflies, ants, bees, beetles, fleas, flies, moths, and wasps uh, complete their entire life in four stages. They go through four different stages of growth, the embryo, the larva, the pupa, and the uh, image. Math is comprised of four rules, addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. Four is the smallest composite and squared number, so two plus two, two times two, and four, four or two squared all get the same answer. Special relativity and, and general relativity treat nature as four-dimensional. 
So because time is that fourth dimension. You and I live in four dimensions right now. The common musical scale is built on two sets of four notes, C, D, E, F, and G, A, B, C. And our new city is built with four square on four sides. It's amazing. And you want to make sure you've got a place in that new city. Look at Ezekiel 48. The last, the last uh, few verses of the entire book of Ezekiel. And it closes with a promise of the new city. And these are the goings out of the city. On the north side, 4,500 measures. Now, I don't know how far that is. I don't, we, we've kind of lost how far a measure is. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. Remember, we just read that in Revelation 21. Three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, Judah, and Levi. And the east side, 4,500 measures. And three gates and one gate for Joseph, Benjamin, Dan. Dan has a gate. Despite, remember, Dan was not sealed in the book of Revelation for the 144,000. But he inherits land in the millennium and he has a gate in the new city. At the south side, 4,500 measures and three gates. One gate for Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. The west side, 4,500 with the three gates. One gate for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So those are the 12 tribes. Remember, uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted by Jacob. So they, Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh are always kind of interchanged around in the scripture. But uh, in this case, it's, it's amazing how um, in these gates you can make up if you follow the pattern, because Levi has a gate, usually he doesn't. His inheritance was in the temple, not with the land. So Levi has a gate. That's why there's no Manasseh or Ephraim. But if you know what their names mean, you could even track down what the, the names in this order represent around the new city. But it was around about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. That's one of my favorite names of God. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Uh, we have a painting in our house with that. Uh, written in it in Hebrew that a lady here in Edmond actually did for us. But the Lord is there. That's the name of, that's one of my favorite names of God because Jesus will be in that city. So I hope what you've gotten out of this study is that we have to be in God's word. And we have to be in fellowship, in relationship with the Lord. We have to be. And the way to do that and to build your faith and to be serious about your walk with Jesus is to be in the word. And his word is totally inexhaustible. You could study it an entire life and not get everything out of it. And in fact, I think that we'll be studying it for all eternity and still not get everything out of it. If you get to a point that there's nothing else to learn, then you, your relationship with the Lord will just stall, right? You have no reason to pursue it any longer. Uh, there's a I'm trying to remember the stat, but there's a statistic out there that if you've learned, I think it's 70% of any subject, then you stop learning the more you try to study it. I think if I remember that right, that's the stat. So you probably can't get up to 70% is my guess. <laughs> but, you know, I want to give you a couple of examples of how God's word is inexhaustible. Uh, just two. And the second one, you just hang with me here. But in Revelation chapter 7, we have the following names given. And we, looked at, we studied this back when we did Revelation, but remember the 12 tribes that are sealed uh, with the children of Israel? 
You have Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. Remember, Dan's not sealed. But you have the 144,000 that are sealed in this order. Well, when you study this, remember in the English, all of these names are transliterated in our Bible. It's how they sound. So Adam in Hebrew, we transliterate it as Adam, and Adam means man. And you can apply this also to Genesis chapter 5 with the, the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Remember, if you translate those names to what they actually mean, that message is the gospel. Uh, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God, uh, or man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that by his death he shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. And you have the genealogies from Adam to Noah lay out the gospel of Jesus there. Well, you apply that here, it's the same thing. Judah to Joseph, praise the Lord, he has looked on my affliction and granted good fortune. Happy am I, my wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me, purchased me, exalted me by adding to me. And then the 12th name, uh, Benjamin there is cut off on the slide, but the son, of my, the son of the right hand. And so you have praise the Lord, and it has this incredible message on how God has joined us with the son of his right hand, with Jesus. The 12th one is, is, is uh, Benjamin. Okay, let's look at a second example real quick. Isaiah 46.10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God declares the end from the very beginning. And which means, it, and that has multiple applications, of course, but it means if you look at the word of God, what's declared at the very end in Revelation, you should be able to see at the very beginning in Genesis, right? Just think about it practically. He declares the end from the very beginning. So the end of Revelation should line up with the beginning of Genesis. And what you would be able to do is to read Genesis going backwards and God's, line, God's word line up with Revelation moving forward, the end from the beginning. Okay, are you with me? So the end of Revelation, the beginning of Genesis 1, and if you work inward, they should line up with, with the same story. Well, you start at the comparison of Genesis and, Genesis and Revelation at the end of an age. Okay, the church age closes in Revelation 3, verse 22. Church age closes. In Genesis, the first end of the age is at Noah's Ark, when the Ark door closes in Genesis 6, 7, verse 16. So you have Revelation 3, 22, and Genesis 7, 16. You go backwards in Genesis, and you go forward in Revelation, and you're going to see the same story, declaring the end from the beginning. Okay, at what happens after the end of the age? Well, there's the rapture of the church in Revelation 4, 1. Well, you go backwards from Genesis 7, 16, what do you see? Rapture from Enoch in Genesis 5, verse 24. Well, then there's tribulation or turbulent times, Revelation 6, 1 with a sealed scroll. There's deep distress in Genesis 4. The first murder had happened, and, and the world is going through some turmoil. A mark is given by the beast in Revelation 13. Well, a mark is given on Cain. Remember, God gives a mark in Genesis 4, verse 15. Those with the mark are killing those without a mark. Because then you back up from Genesis 4.15, what happens? Genesis 4.8, Cain kills Abel. So one with a mark is killing one without a mark. God's people are killed by those with the mark in Revelation 13, verse 15. 
Well, then you keep going. There's Armageddon, where Jesus returns in Revelation 19 and crushes the head of the serpent. We'll keep going backwards in Genesis, the seed war in Genesis 3.15. Remember God prophesied that his, he will crush your head? Okay, so that happens. Then Christ reigns in the millennium in Revelation 20. Well, then you back up further in Genesis, you get God is in Eden in Genesis 2. It's perfect, it's beautiful. He's dwelling with man. There's no sin yet. Then you keep going backwards and Satan rebels in Genesis 1 verse 2. Well, at the end of the millennium, Satan rebels in Revelation 20 verse 7. Then finally you get to the end, the new Jerusalem and God is all in all. And then you get to the very beginning in Genesis and in the beginning, God and he spoke. And so you have the entire ending declared from God at the very beginning of the entire book. And what he spoke, what you and I hold in our hand in the word of God is so inexhaustible and magnificent that I love showing you all these kind of things because I hope it gives you a sense of urgency and a, and a sense of excitement that when you open the word, you are opening something that is so, that is so designed for you and I to study the depth of it, that you should never get bored. It's not, a bore, it's not an ancient book of stories. It's not an ancient book of just genealogies and these writings for us to, to uh, get bored and, and reading. This is something that on every single page speaks of Jesus from Psalms 40, verse 7. And we have an appointment with the Bema Seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. We labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Just one second. I don't want you playing for them too long. <laughs> whether it be good or bad. Remember, everything at this Bema seat, though, is categorized as wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. And so if you're here at the Bema seat of Christ, your salvation is not what is, in, is being judged. It's your faithfulness of service. The Bema seat is a seat of judgment, but judgment for level of rewards, not for a punishment for not accepting the Lord. Some get entrusted with special privileges and some will not. It's a place where you have total control of the outcome. Remember everywhere you see a bride in the Bible, she has to put on her garments. And remember in, the, in Revelation 19, we see the bride, she's clothed with her righteousness. That should bother you a little bit. Uh, it's not, indeed, we are saved by the righteousness of Christ. We put on his righteousness so we have the opportunity to be a part of the bride and put on our righteousness in faithful service to him. But, Let's run to reign with Christ. Look at 2 Timothy 2 and Revelation 3. There will be some rich and some poor. Some will have heavenly riches. Some challenging questions to consider. Just want everybody to think about these. How have you treated other believers? You know, how have you exercised your authority over others? How have you employed God's given abilities to you? You're a steward. You and I are stewards. Uh, Chris and Mason are stewards. They've been entrusted with songs by God that they come up here and sing, and the Lord writes music through them. It's beautiful. God has something that he's entrusted in you. 
and how you use it, you'll be held accountable for. You know, did you bury your talent like the parable of the talents? How have we used our money? How have we spent our time? How much have we suffered for Christ? How we ran the race that God's chosen for us. He's got a race for you. You know, how many people climb the top of the ladder only to realize it's leaning on the wrong wall? And boy, is that true in a lot of our society. That a lot of people spend time climbing a ladder and they get to the top and they look around and realize there's nothing here. I've spent my entire life in a career doing all these things and trying to climb the corporate ladder and get to the, the CEO chair, and then I realize at the end of it when I retire, there's nothing here. Not that God may not call you to that. Don't misunderstand. But I, I have a personal friend that retired in that position that he spends all of his time now worried about his legacy. He spent his entire career building an earthly kingdom, and now he's realizing he's very close to the end of it and has no idea what's on the other side. And he's sitting here going, how do I leave a legacy now? What do I do? I want my name to be remembered well. You don't want to get to that point. But how, do you, how did you respond to temptation? How many people did you witness to and share Christ with? How much did the promise of the rapture mean to you from 2 Timothy 4? You know, how faithful were we to the word of God and the flock? These are all just, just questions, okay, for all of us to consider, myself included. Uh, a lot of these hit home for me. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge, and knowledge temperance, and temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Peter 1, 9 through 11. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. If you are in here and born again, you've been purged of your old sins. God has paid for them. He's cleansed you of them. He's taken that burden off of you. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail or fall, both. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to get into the word of God. And add to, to your calling all of those things that Second Peter lists out. And you do that by getting to know the Lord. And we have a, we have a destiny with the king soon, with the sound of a trumpet, that he's going to call us home. And it is going to be incredible. His word is going to speak out and the graves are going to open. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we're going to be gathered to him for all eternity. So don't forget some rewards in the Bible. Go home and look these up. There's five crowns listed. The crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown imperishable, crown of rejoicing. Every one of those is tied to something different you do right now. Some of them, some of them have to do with how did you care for the flock? Did you love his appearing at the rapture? Did you run the race well, etc.? Okay, remember the words, rewards of the overcomer, to, to eat of the tree of life, not her of the second death. Hidden man, a white stone, a new name, power over the nations. 
white raiment, pillar in a new name, sit with Christ on his throne, and inherit all things. There's eight rewards to the overcomer in the book of Revelation. And to become an overcomer, you have to remain loyal to God. Don't lose your first love from Revelation 2, 1 through 3. Overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord from Revelation 2, 19. Do not deny Jesus, Revelation 3, 8 and 10. Do not defile your garments from Revelation 3, 4. And keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3, verse 10. Okay. Cue the music. All right. If you're if you are here and you're not if you're here and you're not born again, please come and see some one of us after the the service here. Uh, do not leave here without without fortifying your eternal place with Christ. That's the beginning, because then you get to go and you be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit baptizes you in Christ, according to Romans, when you're saved, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then afterwards, according to Acts. Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Ghost. And that is when you have all of the power and the authority to overcome sin in your life, and to get it out, to uproot it. Don't let those things tempt you any longer. But if you need to be saved, it's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. Praise God that you do not have to add anything to it and you can do nothing to take away from it. Jesus paid it all on the cross, and you cannot lose it. If you lost your salvation, then whatever he did on the cross afterwards wasn't enough, right? It just wasn't sufficient, and that's not the case. What he did is sufficient, but what you can lose is an inheritance and rewards with him for faithful service. So stay strong, walk with the king, Bring anything that you have in your life that you need to get rid of, surrender it to him, and let him pick you up and put on that yoke that you were equipped to carry. He's got a, a, special, a special yoke that's easy and light just for you. You know, it's amazing when you do walk into your calling with the Lord, it's really not very hard. Uh, there's not a lot of work to it. Yes, there's labor, but not strenuous work where you feel like you're exhausted that you have no idea how you can press on. It, it's almost, he will give you supernatural strength to continue, I promise you. So just keep that in mind. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, this time together. And Lord, we thank you again for all of the dads and the fathers in this place. God, we pray a special blessing upon this afternoon that our time with our families be blessed. God, we pray that you would Pour your spirit out upon our children, our marriages, our schools, our places of employment, our families, our marriages, God, our spouse, these spouses, Lord, that the enemy wants to tear apart marriage. And God, we pray that you would rebuke the enemy in any attack in the marriages of the families listening to this. Lord, just as Michael declared to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And Lord, that is what we say to the enemy. The Lord rebuke you. You have no place over our families, over our children. And we pray a mighty hedge of protection around your believers and those walking by the Spirit in this world. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We honor you. 
Thank you for this study in your word, God, and we pray that you'd be with us as we leave this place. In your mighty name we pray, amen. Amen. You all have a great day.